You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue, watery part of our planet, the ocean. My name is Jennifer Stock, and Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. And on this show, we talk about with ocean experts about having anything having to do with the blue part of our planet. We discuss conservation, management issues, science, explorations, education, ways to get involved and enjoy the ocean, and more. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, based here in Point Reyes Station, California. The sanctuary is part of a network of 14 unique marine areas that are part of the NOAA National Marine Sanctuary Program. Locally here off the Marin Coast, many of you are aware, we are lucky to have three contiguous areas that are overlapped with some of the most amazing, diverse, and biologically productive ecosystems in the world, although not completely um, not vulnerable. They are vulnerable. And we're going to be talking about some of these large-scale vulnerabilities today on the show. We're going to be talking about climate change. So when I come back in just a few minutes, we'll have a couple different folks on the phone that have been very involved in um, identifying the current science that we know about today regarding climate change. I have Dr. Bill Seideman from the Farallon Institute that will be joining us and Dr. John Largier from UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab. So please stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute to talk a little bit more about the climate change impacts for the coast here of Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries. you're just tuning in, this is Jennifer Stock, and this is Ocean Currents. And on the phone with me, I have two folks that have been very involved with identifying the current science that we know about today regarding climate change and helping to identify some of the future impacts. Um, On global and regional scales, the ocean is changing due to increased atmosphere, um, atmospheric carbon dioxide, and associated global climate change. This Rapid change is larger than any solo local regulation or oversight any uh, agency can control. So today we're talking about these potential impacts for this region right here off the Marin Coast um, between Point Arena and Año Nuevo. Locally, these two national marine sanctuaries here, the Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, with many, many partners and collaborators, decided to look deeper at what this means for these extremely vital areas to the marine food web and humans. Uh, The report, titled Climate Change Impacts, was developed by a joint working group of the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Councils and identifies and synthesizes potential impacts to habitats and biological communities along the north central California coast. So I'm very pleased to welcome two well-known scientists that were part of this team. I have Bill Seideman on the air. He is president and senior scientist of the Farallon Institute, which emphasizes long-term multi-species, multidisciplinary research into the interdependent aspects of the marine environment, including the effects of natural and human-based climate change and the broad implications that the, and influences on ocean currents, weather patterns, fishing practices, and coastal development on marine food webs and ecosystem processes. Bill is very familiar with the plankton to predator studies in the California current, doing some long-term studies here. So, Bill, welcome to the show. You're live on the air. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. And I also have Dr. John Largier, who is a professor of coastal oceanography at UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab. And John focuses his research on coastal oceanography and ecology, specifically focusing on bays and upwelling regions, estuaries, and nearshore circulation of water. John is also a member of the Gulf of the Farallons Sanctuary Advisory Council and has been on this show before, and I'm delighted to welcome him back. So welcome, John. You're live on the air. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you so much, both of you, for taking this time on this federal holiday to share your expertise 
with our listening audience. You both have such in-depth knowledge um, of this region in terms of the way things work on the coast and such intricacies. So thank you so much. Um, John, I want to start with you. As a lead author on this report, can you give us some background on the diversity of science that is addressed in this report and some of the collaborators that you might want to identify? Yeah, Jennifer, the, the report really is, is asking the question, um, so we know climate change is happening, but what will it mean for us here? What will it mean uh, particularly for our ecosystems? Uh, not just is it getting warmer, but what about all the marine populations and how they interact into this rich food web? So that's a tall order, um, both for two reasons. One is the ecosystem, of course, is complicated. The other is because we're looking at one region, not at the earth, not the average of the earth. So as we, as we look at it, we start off with the physics of it. If the earth is warming up, then uh, perhaps the temperatures are warming up here. But even that is not so clear. The sea levels rising around the earth is clearly rising here in, in our region and so on. And as we get... Uh, from the physics, and we look towards the chemistry of the ocean, towards the uh, biology at the lower trophic levels, the lower uh, the planktonic and the smaller life forms, and really try and work the whole way through up to the birds, the mammals, the whales, etc. And um, as one gets more and more into the system, it gets more and more complicated. So in our in our results, and there are probably about ten key points that we bullet in the executive summary, and the ones like the sea level is rising, are things that we're completely certain about. Exactly how fast is the question, but at the other end, what is going to happen to the ecosystem, really difficult to uh, predict. So our approach is um, to, sort of, to use the best available scientific knowledge to, to identify things that could happen. But just the fact that we don't know exactly what's going to happen doesn't stop us from saying these are likely scenarios of what could happen. And we focused on things which um, are more likely or we're more certain about, as well as things which are more threatening. There are a couple of things that might happen to our ocean with climate change. Uh, most recent, um, just in the last really several years, there's been a lot of attention going towards that our oceans are becoming more acidic. We're the early days of research on that, but it, it, if our oceans get more acidic, it'll just be devastating, uh, not only to the corals in the tropical areas, but to a lot of our plankton and near shore um, shellfish along this coast as well. So um, a, a diversity of things. In terms of people, um, I'd love to mention everybody because there was, it really was a community effort. We got together a few different times um, in workshop settings, but also been a lot of time um, in the collaborative writing uh, phase. Uh, on the hand, I don't really want to call out anybody particular because I'm going to miss out, you know, 20 <laughs> or 30 other people. But I'll, I'll just say there was a, a real collaboration, not only uh, with sanctuary staff and sanctuary scientists, but also with the universities, with uh, other research organizations like the Farallon Institute, um, with other government research groups in, in NOAA, with uh, state uh, scientists. Um, it really was a, a very rich collaboration of people who are working in this area and know this, this place as well as we can know it. Do you find that having an opportunity like this, it, this was about a year and a half of um, meeting and, and writing, did you find the opportunity to be a good place for scientists to come together to discuss what they had been working on independently, but really rallying around this huge topic? Yeah, it was, it was uh, rewarding in a way of getting together and really trying to deal with a, a major challenge to to the earth and to humans, really. Um, I, I love to say the ecosystem will continue. It might be very different, and it probably won't be, uh, suit us quite as well as it does now. Um, but it was also frustrating because it is so difficult to figure it out. And we, we, um, there's, there's a lot more we can learn, and we're trying to learn it as fast as we can. And that is actually sort of a limiting factor um, in terms of, of being able to comment on the future state of the oceans under, in a changed climate, mm -hmm. um, there there is a there's a lot to lot to be learned, and that is sort of frustrating because we would come up with questions that we're pretty sure we can get the answer to, but we don't have it now. Interesting. So one of the things I'm curious about, as I was reading through the report, and there's such great information, and I'll give the web address a couple times throughout the show. You can go to farallons.noaa.gov for anybody that wants to download this report. 
Um, and it, but it's well written in terms of people that are not scientists being able to understand it. So I really appreciated that. But one of the things that came to mind with for me is how do scientists attribute the recent changes in climate change in terms of comparing it to the natural fluctuations that we have on this very variable ocean ecosystem. There's yearly cycles, decadal cycles, multi-decadal cycles. And how do you, how do we look at those things together in terms of really identifying climate-related ones? Yeah, well, you, you're really putting your finger on one of the one of the um, difficulties in, in understanding change because there are just like you say there are these cycles, and you can identify many. And the seasonal one is obvious to all of us. But the other one that's become pretty obvious is the El Nino that, or El Nino La Nina. You know, if you just talk about upwelling, that some years will be upwell more strongly than others. And the longer decadal cycles, as you say, Pacific decadal oscillation is well known. With um, <clears throat> Perhaps one of the more famous things associated with that is Canary Row and the decline of, of, of fisheries in the, in the late 40s, 50s. And we go through these warm and cool periods. So... <clears throat> um, how do we do it is, is difficult, and this is where the length of the record is important, as well as scientific understanding and the, and the use sometimes of, of models, of computer models to say, could this, you know, could this be due to an underlying trend? But where we have long-term data like sea level in San Francisco Bay, it's one, one of the oldest, I think actually maybe be the oldest continuous tide gauge since about the 1850s, although of course the earthquake um, messes that a bit, but we have at least hundred years now of really good data on sea level like near the mouth of San Francisco Bay. So on that, you can start seeing the cycles and you can see an underlying trend very clearly. But where we have um, ecological data it tends to be a shorter period. And, and Bill probably can comment on this better than I can. But uh, you know, if you, even if you have 30 years of data, you still uh, have to continue questioning if, if it's a cycle. But there are a variety of aspects, the spatial structure of it or, or un understanding that. Uh, the underlying dynamics allow one to say, we really don't think this is a cycle, this is something more uh, fundamental. Mm -hmm. Bill, do you want to comment on that in terms of data sources and the length of time we have data for to uh, compare to? Sure. The, uh, I mean, as, as John just mentioned, the real, this is a real limitation in, uh, in what we can say with any degree of certainty because of our the biological records, the ecological records tend to be much shorter than the, the physical records. For example, sea level, which is is probably the best one that we have at 100 years. Um, in terms of biology, uh, we're looking at the best, the longest term records maybe in the realm of 30 to 40 years. Um, and so that doesn't even contain a full cycle of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation which is uh, supposedly operates on a scale of 50 to 60 years. So it's a real problem. Now, that said, um, one of the things that, that we've done, and I think this is, uh, this is telling, is when you see unusual events, um, failures of, of birds, let's say, in their reproductive activities, or invasion of uh, the large, the Humboldt squid, the jumbo squid in recent years in the, into the system. Um, these things are occurring during both, let's say, positive and negative times of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. So, and, and then there can be trends in the data as well. Um, and so in those cases, you can say with a fair degree of certainty that it doesn't have anything to do with this long-term variability. The cycles that we're seeing, it has something to do with either a, a longer-term trend or something that's just unusual in the system. Um, so I think those are the kinds of ways that we go about making these attributions. Uh, but, but attribution in terms of biology, be it in the climate change report that we, that we prepared for the sanctuary or in the IPCC, this is very, very tricky business. And, um, and this, is, this is where, you know, everybody starts using the words uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, is, it is difficult. 
You just mentioned the jumbo squid as one, and I'm glad you brought that up in terms of some ways you're able to identify thing, something more likely contributed to climate change. But for both of you, having a lot of time and experience here in the California current ecosystem, are there some long-term changes that you've seen that you believe are related to climate change? And I know some of these are also referenced in the report as well. So, Bill, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, I mean, there's um, there's sort of a host of changes that we believe are related to to climate change. Um, I think that the Humboldt squid, to me, is one of the prime examples of something that just doesn't fit with what we used to see in the ecosystem where Humboldt squid would come in and then they'd leave. They'd come into the system typically during El Nino events and then and then leave when the waters return to a more normal temperature. Uh, now they just don't leave, uh, which would suggest that the waters, um, that there's a new available niche for them to fill um, in warmer waters, uh, possibly lower oxygen, oxygenated waters. So that's a prime example, I think, of uh, maybe one of the better examples. We've seen changes in distribution, uh, range expansions, mainly to the north of um, intertidal organisms, uh, rocky intertidal. Uh, one of the species, I believe, is the volcano um, barnacle that now occupies a, a range further to north than it used to. So what we're seeing here in general is a change in the community organization, the community structure uh, from a community that was more of what we might call a subarctic type of community to a community that's got more subtropical species. And those changes in individual species, of course, have uh, implications for species interactions in the ecosystem, in the community. And those are, uh, that's when we start really not understanding things very well. Uh, is when you start asking the question, what are the implications, the ecological implications of those changes? Um, there's also been uh, so recently there was auklet reproductive failure on the Farallons in 2005, 2006, uh, to a lesser extent in 2007. Um, that uh, those failures were unprecedented when they occurred, um, and while I wouldn't really want to say that because something is unprecedented that it necessarily has to do with <laughs> Climate change, uh, that really is another example of something that, that leads you towards that conclusion. I'll stop there. That sounds good. How about you, John? Have you seen some long some changes that you believe may be related to climate change in your work with oceanography and, and tracking currents and water water masses? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, uh, um, as I was trying to say in the, in the introduction, the more physical sort of uh, foundation of the ecosystem there are clear changes, partly because we have longer data, but also because it's more what we call deterministic. It's more, you know, you, if, you, um, if you have a balancing brick and you push it, you know it's going to fall over. That's determinism. And other things are, you know, more probabilistic that they may happen. And, and so uh, Bill has identified a number of things that we know are happening and exactly how the ecosystem is going to respond and feedback is the question. But on the more physical aspect, yes, um, the the rise in sea level, the, in, the increasing coastal erosion, the uh, the the, the um, reduced snowpack in the Sierras, which leads to more winter runoff of rain and less in spring, um, quite important to the ocean as well. The um, increasing variability in precipitation, more uh, bigger winter storms and more wet, wetter wet years and drier dry years. The uh, increase, increase in temperature, and this is an interesting one because offshore, out um, in the California current, the surface temperatures are increasing, and in the bays they seem to be increasing as well. Uh, but in between the two, we have this process of upwelling of cold waters, and that seems to be getting stronger. So over the uh, continental shelf, the waters are probably cooling, that appears to be the case, um, whereas it's warming offshore and nearshore. The winter waves are getting bigger. Again, that ties in with the winter storms. All of those um, features are um, they're varying levels of certainty, but they I think they all really are um, fairly clear trends, and they long enough records, and they make sense of our global understanding of, of uh, change in climate. So they all fairly 
reliable things that we um, on the period of the record that we that we pretty sure are happening. But as then as you get into the ecosystem and you have you know thirty different or three hundred different uh, players or components in the ecosystem, they're all responding to the changing environment. You know who's going to win the game when you're competing for food or you're competing for space or you have a synergy helping each other. As you knock one player in this ecosystem, it has a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And so that's where there are a couple like the Humboldt squid, Jumbo squid, and Volcano barnacle and so on, where we're seeing clear uh, climate-related um, movements in the range limits. Um, and great gray whale, whales are carving off here more than they have. And, and some of these uh, species, you, you can dig back into time as well and using um, sort of non-quantitative records of um, people's memories and what's been documented, sort of historical ecology. Uh, but anyway, yes, very clearly, thing, the, the physical environment is definitely changing. There's no doubt about that. And many of those things that you mentioned actually have quite a tie to humans, and we'll talk a little bit more towards the, about that towards the end. Yes. But one of the things you mentioned, and some of the things that I read in the report that I think people might be confused by is we're told upwelling is really such an important part of the food web here, really important for the seabirds, the fisheries, um, the whales, everything is so dependent on that. And there are predictions that there'll be um, increased upwelling, stronger winds, more upwelling. Can you explain why this may not be such a good thing in the long run? Yeah. So, well, I, I would I prefer not to call things good and bad <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the environment is changing, the climate is changing, and um, there will be different responses. Um, perhaps when you look at the benefit to humans, we can say it'll be good for us or bad for us. I'm not sure. Um, but things will change. So, the, so um, actually, it's a study that a, that a graduate student of mine did using 30-year records we have of showing increased upwelling of the coast here. But it ties in with some previous uh, studies and model studies and, and hypotheses. Um, so it's, it's gaining strength that the upwelling is increasing. Um, so that, how does that play through the ecosystem is what we don't really know. Um, but, but I can paint a scenario where it might be good or make it more productive because you're bringing up more nutrients into the light-filled surface layers of the ocean, so you're having more primary production. There's more for things, more green matter for things to, to graze on. Um, but at the same time, the um, if you've been on the coast, which most of the listeners have, I'm sure, you know the winds blow really strongly and the currents become quite strong as well. So a lot of the surface water is moving rapidly offshore and down the coast. And if you move it offshore and away from the coast too rapidly, all the good stuff is going to be offshore. So you land up with the situation that in southern Namibia you see quite a lot of luderitz and so on. The upwelling is really strong and really persistent. And so near the coast, you mostly just have newly upwelled water. It is full of nutrients, but there's not all that much living matter in it. And, um, and then you have to move offshore to get that rich soup of planktonic organisms that, that is so important in the Gulf of Farallon. The reason why the Gulf of Farallon and Cordell Bank is full of fish and birds and mammals and so on, things higher up the ecosystem, is because that plankton is, um, is produced in that region and it's retained in that region and can move up the food chain. So it could be, um, it, it could reduce the productivity of the, of the Farallon and Cordell uh, ecosystem, but we don't know exactly how it will play out. And is there also the potential for some of the waters that get upwelled to bring up more acidic waters? Um, I understand that there's more acidic water at depth, and I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit. So that's a, okay. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, um, this is a big issue. So thanks for for, for introducing it. Of um, ocean acidification is the phrase we're using for it. Uh, basically, the waters in the ocean can become more corrosive, and it's really, really important. Uh, for things that form calcium carbonate structures, whether it be a skeleton or a shell um, and various other structures like that. If the pH of the ocean, the oceans become more acidic, then they really struggle to form those hard structures. So the question is, how how does it work? Well, um, it's all about carbon dioxide again. Uh, That's the primary thing. So the oceans have been helping us out really well as we've increased the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from what is it, from 280 parts per million to 380, 390 parts per million, a huge increase 
it's still been less than it would have been if the ocean weren't there sucking up a lot of the CO2. So the ocean's helped us out there. But as the oceans increase the, the carbon dioxide, the CO2, it changes this balance in the formation of hydrogen ions and, um, and changes the pH of the ocean. So the oceans are, are slowly getting more acidic, very, very slightly so, but enough to be a real ecological problem. Um, how does upwelling play into it? <clears throat> well, the, um, the CO2 at depth, is a, is the carbon dioxide is a higher concentration at depth, and then this deep water gets upwelled along the side of the continent, along California, Mexico, Peru, Chile, lots of places in the ocean. And um, so that's where you get the waters which are richest in carbon dioxide, and as a result, <clears throat> lowest in pH or most acidic. question is, as you say, if the upwelling increases, then you're bringing waters from greater depths, they're colder and they're more acidic. So there's sort of a double whammy there. If you're making the oceans in general more acidic and you're bringing water up from greater depths, then our coast along, the, along here in California, in the upwelling region, is sort of at the, uh, at the bleeding edge. It's really going to uh, see this lowest pH uh, and most severe and, and, and sooner than other places. It's, it's really concerning, and we're trying to get a handle on how bad is it or would it be. Uh, when the waters that are upwelling here now maybe were formed 50 years ago. So, um, you know, we've got... It's, a, it's quite, a, quite a complex problem. Let me just leave it at that. It's really interesting just to hear, and a lot of us don't think about how water moves and how it influences everything else biologically. And it just the things you're talking about here, I think I'm getting a picture of just the different depths of the ocean and how things are stratified and they move and they affect other things. So thank you for describing that. Um, it's already 1.30. We're, we're coming up here on a break, and I want to talk a little bit more on the second half um, a little bit more about some of the biological processes and changes and what could happen. There's a couple different options there and some of the impact to humans. So, Bill and John, please stay on the line with us. I'm going to put you on hold for a little bit. Um, for those of you just tuning in, you are listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. My name is Jennifer Stuck. And we have Dr. John Largier from Bodega Marine Lab at UC Davis on the phone, as well as Dr. Bill Seideman from the Farallon Institute. And we're talking about some of the potential changes from climate change that we might um, receive here in our large ecosystem right off the coast here of the Marin-Sonoma Coast and our National Marine Sanctuaries and beyond. So stay with us on the next half hour. We'll continue to discuss that. I'll be back in just a moment. Jennifer Stock, you're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. And on this show today, we're talking with two scientists in the region who have been working on um, the current science and where we're headed with climate change and the impacts that we might uh, receive here in our ecosystem. And we just finished off the last half hour talking a bit about ocean acidification and upwelling and how we're getting more upwelled waters that uh, may have more carbon or more acidic waters um, that can infect affect the food web. Bill, I want to ask you, one of the um, potential responses for individuals and populations in the ocean, we were talking a little bit earlier about some range expansion, but there were a couple other things that were mentioned in terms of options for populations to react to this changed ecosystem. I'm wondering if you can go into that a little bit, or what are those options for the different animals um, and plants in terms of adapting to these changed ocean conditions? Mm, That's a very good question. Uh, let's see. I think uh, one place to to start is to just to think about individual species, or as you say, you know, populations are composed of individuals, and that those individuals can alter their behavior in different ways to adapt to changes in um, in their environment, uh, and also to maintain what we call their inclusive fitness, which essentially is is the production of uh, of offspring that then you know re-enter the population years later when they when they uh, when they reach maturity, um, and I think one of the 
big changes that we're expecting. Um, this has not necessarily been demonstrated in our system here, but globally it's been demonstrated, is that there would be a change in the growing season and that the uh, there would be an advancement in uh, when, let's say, the phytoplankton blooms and the zooplankton blooms occurred in the Gulf of the Farallons marine ecosystem. So things are supposed to get earlier. And um, the predators that are then dependent upon those, those uh, parts of the ecosystem for food, uh, they could respond by tracking the changes in the timing, if you will, of the, of the phytoplankton blooms or the zooplankton blooms by also getting earlier. Now, um, there is some evidence that this is actually going on. We've seen an advancement in, let's say, the laying dates of common MERS, a species of seabird on the Farallon Islands. Uh, they've gotten earlier by about 20 days over the last 30 years, so almost a, a day or a year. Um, but there's a limit to how far they can, they can change, and that limit is set by photoperiod. So in other words, the birds may get earlier to track the changes in their prey base, but they may not be able to adapt all the way because there are other things that start to play a role in terms of when they lay their eggs each year. Um, so these are some of the complexities that we were talking about earlier in the show about the ecosystem and the response of the ecosystem. Uh, we're, you know, we're not sure how different species are going to be able to respond and how those ecological interactions will actually change. But the timing is, is one of those things that we're particularly interested in. And, and uh, again, there's, there's pretty good evidence that, that uh, in different places around the globe that the spring is getting earlier. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that does have some implications. Yeah, it was interesting you say about the photo period. That's true in terms of how many days of daylight we have in terms of uh, phytoplankton reproduction and, and the timing of all that. How about species that are more resilient than others? Are there some species that we have here that are more resilient and will be able to adapt to these big changes and stay put or maybe even thrive? Yes, absolutely. There, there will be... Uh, what we like to call winners and losers. I think we mentioned this earlier. Um, there are species that are certainly more resilient. They tend to be the species that are, uh, one would term more of a generalist. Um, they're able to adapt to, uh, to human-dominated landscapes, for example, gulls, uh, western gulls, um, species like that. They eat um, anything <laughs> that you put in front of them. Uh, they're not reliant on one or two prey items, and should those prey items disappear from the environment, then those, spe those species have trouble. These are species that, that are they're able to, uh, to, to eat anything. Um, and also species that are able to search for food over a wider geographic range, they tend to be more re uh, resilient. Um, so we have, uh, let's say... Um, uh, well, uh, harbor seals um, at Point Reyes, um, you know, they're pretty much restricted to the Gulf of the Farallons region, whereas an elephant seal, uh, they may reproduce on the Farallon Islands or at Point Reyes or at Año Nuevo, uh, but they forage in the central North Pacific and as far north as the Aleutian Islands. So, um, and, and so certain species are more resilient, and that resiliency also has to do with the the distance that they can travel to find food. Interesting. That's interesting about uh, some of them just having to stay here. Some of them are have a broader range that they can adapt in and deal with. How about um, in terms of, this is a little detour, but for 2010, I've been hearing a lot of people say these are some of the coldest sea surface temperatures we've had. Um, what is your thoughts on this year's upwelling in terms of it being a productive year, in terms of krill production and how are we doing in terms of this year, and is this related to the opposite, the La Nina event, or what are where are we at right now with our spring upwelling season? Well, we've we've shifted very rapidly into a, um, a a cold water situation. We went through about eight or nine months of uh, a weak to moderate, depending on how you define it, El Nino event. Started in two thousand and nine. Uh, it was relatively um, relatively weak in terms of its effects. Uh, it was also um, not 
uh, sort of your eastern tropical Pacific El Nino. It was it was what's known as a western of uh, tropical Pacific El Nino, and they're much more shorter. They're shorter lived and not as intense. Um, and now we've transitioned to a uh, to more of a colder situation. Um, there, I, I mean, I think we're headed towards a rather mediocre year um, in terms of overall productivity because generally what happens during the winter period, during January, February, and March, uh, is predictive of what um, how well the season turns out. It can get a little bit better, but generally if the winter productivity, if the winter season is off in some way, as it was this year, then that translates to um, – poor to, to moderate sort of productivity. So even though the upwelling system's kind of kicked in now, and there is krill in the environment, and in some cases things are doing well, I think overall when we look back upon 2010, we're going to say, say that uh, um, it, was, uh, it was a kind of result of a weak El Nino event was not particularly productive. Interesting. Thanks for explaining that. So we have about uh, five, ten minutes left in terms of talking about some of this climate change. And I just want to move transition a little bit more into some of these impacts to humans. And that's one of the main things the sanctuaries are going to be looking at in terms of how are we going to respond with our, the management authority we have to um, help protect the ecosystem, but also to help humans adapt with this that are living along the coast specifically. So... John, you were mentioning earlier a lot about snowpack and rainfall and the the uh, impact that could have on the changes that we could have there with that. And can you translate that a little bit more into some of the – how does that translate down to humans in terms of water? You know, this year we had a pretty good year of rain and the reservoirs filled up, but what could the next few years right. look like? Yeah, so um, just to reiterate for for the listeners, I mean, the idea that you put forward earlier is that there are – climate fluctuations and their climate climate trends. And so what we've been talking about is El Nino and La Nina and things like this are, um, are fluctuations superimposed upon some underlying trend. So the real climate change uh, problem is trying to understand that trend that underlies it. Although these fluctuations are um, can, can create problems uh, for us humans as well as uh, birds, as Bill is describing, and the El Nino got its name from uh, from Peru because it really created havoc for the fisheries there. The fluctuations are a problem, but they have always been around. This underlying trend um, is, um, as we're saying, not only an issue for the ecosystem but for humans. The report that Bill and I and others <clears throat> worked on was directed at trying to understand the ecosystem impact. Um, but humans are part of that ecosystem, so we looked at it to some extent but not in, in a lot of depth. The, as you say, the changing snowpack in the Sierra is, is a huge issue for humans directly uh, and, and economically and in many other ways. Um, the, the, the snow on the Sierra is really a big reservoir of water. sits there and slowly releases the water all through the spring, and it's only around about now that the, you know, the, that the flows start really decreasing. Now, if there's less snowpack, then that reservoir is not there, and um, the question becomes, well, how do we manage our water? Because we're going to run short of it early in the year. So um, there are big issues like that. There um, sea level rise and coastal erosion, flooding of water into, um, you know, into coastal uh, communities, coastal towns and villages, and not only onto the road, but down into the pipes which take our wastewater to the ocean, all sorts of issues. The key thing we focused on was how does, how do the humans respond to those things and therefore maybe aggravate or hopefully mitigate, but more likely aggravate the uh, impact of the ecosystem? So if the rainfall, if the flow in the rivers through the delta and so on are, are really low in springtime, the sort of human response is to take more of it because there's less of it. And therefore the ecosystem is probably going to get a double whammy. Um, so that could be a real problem. The same thing with uh, sea level rise and, and, and bigger waves and shoreline erosion are left alone. The people that own the land along the shoreline are probably going to want to build seawalls. That's becoming more difficult. But if they do, that then in turn um, sort of deflects the erosion and creates bigger erosion problems elsewhere. So there's a real um, – the way humans respond to the direct effects are going to, as I say, aggravate or mitigate and most likely aggravate 
the impact on the ecosystem, which in the end uh, provides, uh, we call them ecological goods and services. There are a lot of things we get from the ocean. One of the, uh, like we catch fish and eat them, that would be a good, but there are many services. A lot of the clean air we have, a lot of the uh, <clears throat> other benefits we get are directly from having a healthy ocean ecosystem. So that's, that is the primary there were two human aspects. That is the one approach we took. The other one that is very important is if you're interested in this uh, ecosystem, Cordell and uh, Farallon's ecosystem, um, it's getting stressed out in a variety of different ways. One of them is a changing climate. The other are more direct ways that we impact the ocean. And I think we're all familiar with that we do pollute our ocean, that we do take fish out of it, that we do a variety of things to the ocean. And if, if we keep them under control, maybe we don't damage the ocean too much. And that is the question of these, we call them parallel stresses, things that are in parallel with climate change also stressing the ocean. Why that becomes important is because they're the things that we can control. As a society, we can decide we're not going to catch any more fish. I'm not suggesting that, but it's something we can do. As a society, we can't say we don't want any climate change next year because we're already committed to it. We've, you know, probably 50, 100 years of commitment to it already. So taking this more holistic approach and making sure that the Gulf of Farron's ecosystem, Cordell Bank, wherever you're interested in, is a, is a vital, healthy, and therefore resilient ecosystem. So really reducing the human impacts as much as we possibly can is one way to help restore some vitality to adapt to these changes, it seems. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's easy to say, but I think that as part of the action plan, maybe that the sanctuaries need to take on working with, with uh, collaborative agencies is what exactly does it mean? And what what actions, do what things we think are stressing out the system the most and what can we realistically reduce the stress? Um, how can we re- realistically reduce the stress? Mm-hmm. The analogy I like to use for that is if if, it, if it's flu season, the best thing you can do is is be well rested, eat well, perhaps exercise, make sure your body's healthy, and and the chances of getting flu are very are very low. Your body's resilient; you can handle it uh, naturally. And same thing, the ecosystem as a whole. There might be some species that are going to knock really badly. As a whole, I think what we can hope. Well, we know the ecosystem is going to handle climate change much better if it's healthy than if it's uh, totally stressed out. It's also kind of like restoring native vegetation. You know, we have ice plant that covers certain areas. As soon as you remove it, it just start, seems to bounce back. It's pretty amazing, that resiliency that nature holds. Um, we're coming close to the end here, and I just want to ask both of you, um, what are your key recommendations for both the coastal managers, utility managers, coastal towns, government, to deal with these fast-paced changes, as well as... What are your recommendations for everyday people like us um, every day to help be more prepared for these changes in addition to looking for solutions to slowing down this input of carbon? So both the people who are the decision makers as well as those that are most affected by this, the majority of us, what are your key recommendations? And Bill, how about we start with you? Well, tough question, (laughs) uh, of course, but uh, I think that... uh, my my main recommendation in, the, in this regard is that um, that people keep their eyes open to things that that not only affect them themselves or affect the particular interest that they may have, but um, that they they keep an eye on what's affecting other people in other sectors of the of society. And I say that, and and John just touched upon it um, because. The issue of climate change and the way that it will affect different different sectors, and we can't really manage on a sector by sector basis. We now have to work together, and this is what people are are calling the ecosystem based approach to management, where all of the agencies, all of the local and state federal uh, groups that that deal, let's say, with the Gulf of the Farallons, really need to be working together in a cooperative format. Um, and paying attention to what's affecting the the other person sitting on the table, sitting uh, you know at the table with you, um, and I think that that's that's kind of my main recommendation in terms of the the agency side of things is don't get too overly focused on your own 
agenda, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, for the individual uh, person, um, I think that, you know, we all do things um, on a daily basis that contribute to or can contribute to this issue of, of global warming, of climate change. Um, there are some pretty fundamental lifestyle changes that need to happen in order to uh, minimize this process that we've put in place that's, that's now will last no matter what we do for, for decades, if not centuries. And I think that, uh, again, people need to be cognizant of what they're, what they're doing and, and try to take steps to um, conserve and you know, do all the sorts of things that, that we've known we should do for, for a long period of time. And some people do and some people don't. Um, but I think now you have this, this global problem, and it really is global, um, and uh, everybody contributes to it, and by making changes in your lifestyle that um, that change that global problem, then you, I think you have an effect locally, and that's what that's really what you want to do. So, um, you know, just be aware of, of of what you're doing and how it may contribute to this uh, overall issue that we're facing as a planet and as a society. I'll just say, add to that, in the in the education and outreach world that I work so so much a part of. This is such a challenge for us, this climate change communication, because people are a little burnt out hearing it. And it's such a big scale lifestyle change that it's very difficult to change people's behavior. So we're really struggling in our communities. But youth seem to be the power in terms of affecting change. And there's a lot of focused efforts going towards younger communities to help be more adaptive and willing to change. John, how about you? Do you want to add to that in terms of recommendations that you see for uh, the main things we should be focusing on, coastal managers and towns and whatnot, for being yeah. ready for this? I think uh, underline the two things that have been said. What Bill has just said is uh, we really have to, both in our individual behavior and in our political choices, we have to deal with the reality of climate change. And the fact that we have a 50-year commitment or a 100-year commitment from things we've done over the last century uh, doesn't mean we, it's not super urgent to get on top of it right now. So that's, that is the critical thing. The other thing we said before is if we're interested in the ecosystem, and it's probably true for socioeconomic systems as well, if we want them to be sustained, then there are a variety of ways that the ecosystem is being stressed. And climate change is just one of them. And, but we definitely um, can reduce uh, things like pollution. Um, and that leads then to the third point, is we we don't really understand nearly enough about the ocean and also even terrestrial ecosystems, but particularly ecosystems in water because we are terrestrial organisms and we don't live there. But how? what are the things that are really going to matter and what are the things which are going to change but uh, the ecosystem and we can live with it? So I think that is important that we understand and we improve our knowledge so we can make the right choices and not waste our energy and effort going after after ghosts or things that we could have figured out were not going to be as severe a problem. So that's sort of a, a pitch for research, but it's more than research. It's knowledge and a society working together. Um, um, and then the fourth one is, is policy, that our policies tend to get stuck in a rut. And if the system is changing, we need to have policies that can adapt get reviewed every every several years probably and that we can no, not carry on doing things that that worked back you know 50 100 years ago but that we our policies can be adaptive and nimble and <clears throat> make a head in the right direction and i think that points right back to us as humans in terms of being voting citizens and being very aware of who we're voting for and what we're what we're voting for so thanks for bringing that up in terms of us being able to be adaptive and, and forward-thinking. Um, John and Bill, I just want to say thank you so much. This hour's flown by, and I really appreciate your time and, and sharing your comments on the Climate Change Impacts Report. Any last words from either of you? I, I just want to thank you for, <clears throat> for focusing attention on this and keeping the dialogue going and, um, and through this um, encouraging encouraging everybody to think about it and how they individually and, and politically as a group can and can make things different because um, we, we, can, we can get on top of this issue, but it requires all of us to work together. Great. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Jennifer. I think it's uh, it's been a very productive conversation, and hopefully we get to do it again in the future. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your Monday. Really appreciate you coming on the show today. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we've just been talking with uh, Dr. John Largier from UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab and Bill, Dr. Bill Seidman from the Farallon Institute, two local scientists that have been part of a big group uh, dealing with climate change impacts and making recommendations and compiling current science and knowledge about the climate situation that we have as it relates to the ocean. And a summary report was put together for both the Gulf of the Fairlands and Cordell Bank sanctuaries to start to put plans in place to do some adaptive management. How are we going to move forward in the next 10 years to best protect these ecosystems? And like John and Bill said, try to make them as resilient as possible for some of the changes we might be having. <clears throat> so I wanted to direct attention to you to see that there is an executive summary that's a summary of the whole report, much shorter. Um, and there's also the other report is a little bit longer, but so good, full of really good information, natural history of this region that is very readable for those of us that are not scientists. And you can get this report um, either at the Cordell Bank or Farallon's uh, website. So that's Cordell Bank, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V or Farallon's dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Gulf of the Farallon's National Marine Sanctuary really spearheaded this effort and put staff towards um, managing it and making it happen. So... I want to thank them for including Gulf of the Farallons, uh, including Cordell Bank Sanctuary in that as well and, and in the study area. Um, so check out the re- report, Climate Change Impacts, and kind of tying along with some of the uh, ecosystem and habitat responses we were talking about, I just thought I'd announce, you've probably heard in the news, that the Cordell Bank Sanctuary just returned from a cruise offshore, part of a deep-sea coral cruise that took place from Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary up in Washington all the way down to Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary off of Santa Barbara. And we did, despite some very challenging weather conditions and technology challenges, did get a chance to dive in the further western part of the Cordell Bank Sanctuary, which uh, just west of Cordell Bank drops pretty deep, and they had a chance to dive in um, some pretty deep waters between 300 and 400 meters with this remotely operated vehicle, this underwater camera and robot. Um, and during these dives, they had an opportunity to see some deep-sea coral habitats that we didn't know that were part of the sanctuary. We had a feeling they were there. There were some records, but now we have a better sense of some of the corals and habitats that we have on that western part of the sanctuary. So they had about 100 observations of six different deep-sea corals. And some of you may be wondering, deep-sea corals, but they are here. These are animals that uh, use the deep, the the, uh, the detritus that washes down from the upper parts of the water column down to the seafloor and live at depth. So very, very interesting. You can keep an eye on um, the blog from the expedition, and you can link to that from the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website, see some pictures of these corals, and hear from the scientists about the challenges of sampling out there. Um, so cordellbank.noaa.gov, there's a link to our expedition page for that. But we're just about out of time today for Ocean Currents. You can always download past shows or sign up for our podcast at uh, cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's Jennifer Stock, Ocean Currents, and you're listening to KWMR. Rick Clark will be up next. Take care. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.